May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So that's a, a, that gospel reading is a pretty well-known story. Uh, I suspect the Luke version is probably better known, and we often read the Matthew version in kind of light of the Luke version. It's a little bit weird. It finishes with many a Many are, many are invited, but few are chosen. When in fact in the story, lots, lots were chosen and only one was thrown out. I mean, it just doesn't fit with the story, really. Um, so it's, it's not an easy story. So um, I'm going to give you a minute to turn to your neighbour and talk about, because I'm sure you've heard many sermons on this, what you think the story of the wedding banquet is all about. So find a neighbour. What is that story all about? We're a bit scattered. We're social distancing. There's certainly ruling today. Where'd you get to? I want to hear what you have to say first. (laughs) So what do you think? Many are called, but few are chosen. Which doesn't fit the story, but it's a nice phrase. How come the one that was cast out was selected specifically because he wasn't doing the right thing? Right. So what do you think that's about? Rejection. Rejection. Yep. Judgment. So who's judging? The king. The king. Who does the... Oh, so the king is God? No. No. No here? No. Definitely no. Right. (laughs) Definitely no. Any yeses anywhere? The right kind of approach, okay. So, I mean, this is a hard story. Uh, and there are lots of people, including some of the commentators I read, who would who automatically go to the, the king figure is God. So we just kind of gravitate to that. The landowner is God, the king figure is God. But there are others who go, no. And we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so there are a few things we need to keep in mind about the story as we, as we read it. And the first is um, everything that Jesus has taught about the kingdom of heaven, the reign of God up to this point. So the problem with the way we often read the Bible, which is we take these stories and we read them as standalone stories, is they then get disconnected to everything else that Jesus has taught up to that point in that gospel. So this gospel reading has been used, for example... Uh, by British clergy during the British Raj uh, to justify the burning of cities and the killing of Indians because they were clearly like uh, the wedding guests in this story 
who did not respond to the king's, God's invitation, and then God punished them. So they were acting exactly the same way as agents of God, punishing the Indians for their lack of joy at the Indians coming to, at the, the British coming to India. So there were sermons preached about that on the basis of this reading. So we have to be very careful about how we read these, uh, these stories in light of everything else that Jesus has taught up to that point. And the second thing is we have to be very careful not to always immediately assume that the king or the landowner is God. And there are some stories where it can be argued that actually uh, some of the lowest figures in the story act in a more godlike way than, than those people. And then uh, the third thing we need to remember about this story is that this is at the end of a conversation that, Je- that we've been listening to for several weeks now between Jesus and the chief priests and the Jerusalem elite and Matthew and he tucks in the Pharisees about halfway in through the story. Jesus is in the temple and they come to him and they say, by what authority are you doing all of these things? And by all of these things, They mean the teaching and the healing and the forgiving of sins, which we don't think is very odd. But actually, as I said last week, forgiveness of sins happened in the temple and was performed by the priests, not by some hillbilly rabbi from some town that most people had never heard of. That that didn't happen. Uh, He ate with sinners, tax collectors, people you weren't supposed to eat with. Then he entered Jerusalem on a donkey, which had all sorts of messianic overtones. Uh, When he got to Jerusalem, he went to the temple and overturned the money changers' tables. And then there there he is, back in the temple teaching. And so they come to him and they say, by what authority are you doing all of these things? They want to kick him out. They want to silence him. And Jesus replies by asking what they thought about John's baptism which effectively was saying, by what authority did John baptise? Who gave him this authority? And they wanted to say, no one, he just kind of made it up. But they couldn't say that because the crowd all thought that John was a prophet. And they think that Jesus is a prophet. So he is linking his authority with John's authority. And they know that if they say human, they're going to be in trouble. So they're not going to say divine, because then the people are going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? And why did you let him be executed? So they don't give an answer. And Jesus says, well, I'm not going to answer your question either. And then he tells three stories which answers their question, but also which highlights their lack of authority, their lack of God-given authority. Yes, they have lots of power, and they will use that power to make sure that Jesus is executed. But he is saying... They have no God-given authority. Their authority is human authority. So the first story was uh, about two sons who were asked to go and work in the vineyard. Vineyard being a common image in the prophetic tradition for Israel, particularly in Isaiah. And the first son says, nah, I'm too busy, I'm not going to go and do that. But then he changes his mind and does it. And the second son says, of course, Dad, I'll go and do that. And is way too busy on the PlayStation and never gets around to it. And then he asks the chief priest and the leading families, well, who did the father's will? And they say, the first son, clearly. And Jesus says, so how come you didn't believe John? The tax collectors and the prostitutes 
are going into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. You are like the second son who say all the right things, but you do not act in the way in the, in the way that you, you talk about. Your actions betray you. And then he uses a second story to, to illustrate what he's talking about, where he uses Isaiah 5. And this is where he tells the story about a man who owns another vineyard, and he puts tenants into that. Now, we often read Jesus' stories as make-believe, but this is a story about every single person who is listening to him. So the crowd are tenant farmers and day labourers. And the chief priests and the leading families of Jerusalem are the landowners. And they have acquired most, they have, they, like other wealthy people, have acquired this land because the tax burden on the poorest farmers was too great. Roman tax, Rhodian tax, temple tax. And they got into too great a debt and they had to sell their land to pay their debts. And that's when, so all of this is reasonably recent. And that was when the chief priests and the leading families obtained all of this land. So everyone who is listening to the story is involved personally in the story. They are either the landowner or they are the tenants and day labourers. And he talks about how when it's time for the harvest, this landowner, like every landowner, sends down the slaves to get the, the rent, the, the percentage of produce. And in this story, those tenants uh, beat up and kill the slaves. More slaves are sent, they're beaten up, killed. Eventually the landowner sends his son, says they'll respect him, and they kill him. They take him out and they kill him. And so we usually see that landowner as, as a kind of God figure, uh, which it's, this one's fairly neutral, until we get to the question... So what would this landowner do? So that's the question asked of the land-owning chief priests and leading Jerusalem elite. And their answer is, because this is what they would do, we would hire some people to go down there to kill them, and then we would put some different farmers in there. That's what they would do. So that's going back to the first question, what well, so that's, that, you're like the second son. You say all the right things, but then you go around killing people. So that's not good. And then Jesus says, he then talks about the building block that was rejected, that is now the cornerstone, and that will become the stumbling block. And, um, and he is talking about the chief priests and the leading families. They are the ones that will stumble on that rock. And then he tells a third story, which is in response to how they answered that second story. This is a similar story to the one told in Luke, but this one is way darker. The one in Luke is a way nicer story, and that's the one that we like to go to. And so we often read the Matthew version in light of the, the Lucan version. But, but Matthew is a way darker writer. And uh, he could have written some of the really good horror novels around today, I think. <laughs> now, the tricky bit about the story is that it starts off with, well, it's often translated in, as the kingdom of heaven is like. But that's not what the Greek says. So you may have noticed today in the NRSV it said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. That's different. That should alert you to the fact that the Greek is different. So the kingdom of heaven is like is an active tense. 
So, another example of an active tense is the boy threw the ball. Very simple, straightforward, no mucking around. Kingdom of heaven is like. Very straightforward, that's what Jesus means. Kingdom of heaven is like. But this is in the passive tense. The passive tense, we don't use a lot in Te Rao Pākehā, but if you do Te Rao Māori, they use the passive all the time. It takes you ages to get your head around the fact. They're always in the passive. You have to kind of work out how, how this is all working. And the passive is, the ball was thrown by the boy. The ball was thrown by the boy. This is in the passive tense. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to by. And Jesus doesn't say who is comparing the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't answer the by question, leaves that dangling. We assume Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven to this wedding feast. But actually, maybe, well, the wedding feast is another common, especially in Isaiah, common image for the reign of God. In pre-money times, how did you show people had wealth? Food. The people who had all the food had all the wealth. So when I first Isaiah was being written, it was just on the edge of the invention of money. And so the images of wealth and luxury and comfort all come from not money, but by having lots of food. So Isaiah uses the food image. And so the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a wedding feast by, well, by the chief priests and the leading families, by the Pharisees, by the prophets. Everyone compares it to a wedding feast. But the versions of wedding feasts then kind of diverge. So, in this story, it's about a king who throws a party for a son's wedding. And... Like nowadays we have come at this time and, and everything will be ready. But in those days they would just kind of say, around this time there will be a feast. Kind of keep this, these few days, well these, this week free. And when everything is ready, we will let you know and you can come. And because these are events which, um, where there's a lot of honour at stake, uh, for a king to throw a party, there needs to be a lot of food, there needs to be the right people, uh, and, and you know, I think it just needs to be on a grand scale. So Herod's feast where John the Baptist is, is uh, beheaded, that's a, that's a high honour event. All the leading families, there's lots of food, there's lots of drink, there's lots of entertainment. And so uh, when people say, no, they're not going to come, they are disrespecting and dishonouring the king. So the king kills them all. So who does that sound like? Well, a whole lot of people think, well, well, that's how God acts. God kills all the people who disagree with him. But it doesn't sound like much else that Jesus says about God in the rest of the gospel, to be honest. It doesn't sound like the God of the Beatitudes, for example, who longs for a world where most, the most important people are the poor in spirit, and those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for God's justice, the pure in heart, the merciful, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for the sake of God's justice. It doesn't sound like the reign of God 
where all flourish and where the common good is held as paramount, a world where the needs of the poor are placed first and where all are treated with honour and respect. It sounds nothing like that God. So the only way we can say, well, that's how God acts, is if we just forget the rest of the Gospel. So, to me, this sounds actually much more like, more like how the chief priests and elders just said that they would act. In the previous story, they said, oh, we would send somebody down to kill them and then put in new tenants. That's exactly what they said they would do. So it's them who are the king. Or, or Herod the Great, who was deeply paranoid and killed a number of his children who he thought were kind of after his throne. And when he heard there was, a, in Matthew's Gospel, a new king being born in Bethlehem, sent his army down to kill all the two, year, two and under-year-old boys to make sure that king didn't grow up. Or his son, Herod Antipas, who also was deeply paranoid, uh, and had John the Baptist beheaded, because his wife didn't like what he was saying. It sounds like one of them. Or the Caesar... I can't remember if I should have looked this up. I think it was Vespasian, but it may have been Titus. And uh, who, after the Roman insurrection, the Jewish insurrection, led the legions into Israel and destroyed their cities and destroyed Jerusalem and either killed or enslaved the Jewish population. It sounds like one of them. And Matthew's Gospel was written after the fall of Jerusalem. So that's an event they had lived through. It was one of the deep traumas that kind of undergirds this Gospel. So is the story about God? Well, I would say no. It's not a story about God. This is a story that critiques how God and the Kingdom of Heaven is described and lived by people like the chief priests and the leading Jerusalem families. And it comes out of their ending of the previous story, the story about the vineyard. And it's told in answer to the question that they asked, by whose authority do you do these things? And by telling these three stories, he's saying, well, I act under the authority of God. Whose authority do you act under? It would appear not God human authority. Your actions betray you. So what do we do with this story? Maybe we need to take time to reflect on how our picture of God matches what Jesus taught and lived. Maybe we need to take time to reflect on how the Beatitudes really shape our understanding of what the reign of God looks like. So I want to finish with a question about the end of the story. The person who did not wear the wedding robe, who just turned up and then was bound hand and foot and cast into the outer darkness where there is gnashing of teeth and weeping. Which kind of just gets thrown in there, really. It's like Matthew just took something from somewhere else and tucked it on the end. So on Tuesday at our midweek service, we had a little conversation about that, and so uh, one of the person, one of the people there, just thought it was about what people wore, and she didn't think what people wore was very important, which at one level is true. Uh, 
when I was younger, I used to go to church to 8 o'clock and I would wear the clothes that I'd worn the night before because when you get up at 8 o'clock to be at church by 8 o'clock in the morning, you are not going to spend a lot of time hunting around for new clothes. And uh, other people who went to 8 o'clock were outraged that I would turn up to church in jeans, to which my mother would respond, He's here! Like, where are your children? And then I would go back to bed. So I had done church. Well, till lunchtime. When I went off to the next thing. It's not really about what people wear. I think it's about the attitude that people brought to that feast. So most of those guests were not people who would normally got anywhere near such a feast. They were not of people of high standing, of high honour. And so they would have been left outside. And we, interestingly, often read that as the Gentiles. But actually, this is about all the other Jews. Not the leading families, not the wealthy, not the powerful. It's about all the other Jews. The majority of the people who were poor and who were not seen as important. They were the ones who were left on the outside. They would have been incredibly grateful to be invited to such an event, to have that amount of food available for them to eat. That was a real, a real image of the kingdom of God, the reign of God. To be given such honour, to be in such a place. And so the wedding robe can be seen as their gratitude to that. But the one without the wedding robe, he just seemed to take it for granted. He was like the chief priests and the Jerusalem elite who believed that they deserved to be there and that they deserved to have whatever they had because they had earned God's grace. And they did not need to live in gratitude. So a final question, in what ways are we like this ungrateful one? In what ways are we like the chief priests and the Jerusalem elite? And what might we need to let go of to really join the party? So I leave you with that thought. And I think we will go straight to the prayers. So uh, while we get ready for that, you can turn around to your neighbour and have a quick conversation about all of that. And in about 30 seconds we'll have prayers.